Dinner is ready. Those are the words that my wife often says during our many years of marriage. When I hear those words, I know that my course of action must change. And if I don't respond on time, I might hear further words accompanied by footsteps that say, Honey, did you hear me when I told you that dinner is ready? And she'll remind me that dinner is ready. And I'll know that in light of her saying, her statement, that things need to change in my actions. That whatever I was doing, I got to cease right then and there. It's the last hour. That ought to have a profound impact upon everyone who is a child of God. Our spiritual antennas, so to speak, should go up. It should cause us to be alert and sensitive to not only to a period of time, but also to the nature of the time. Today, I want to talk to you about the fact that it's the last hour. And knowing it's the last hour ought to be a game changer for each and every Christian. It ought to radically change our course of action. It ought to radically change how we view things and how we proceed. Oftentimes, as Christians, we forget the times in which we are living. And yet, as we come to our text, John wants us to know, he wants his readers to know, that it is the last hour. John begins his passage by directly addressing his readers as children. Back in chapter 2, he's addressed them as Children, little children, beloved children, fathers, young men. But now, he once again uses this term, children. He wants to remind his readers that he is their spiritual father. That he is their spiritual guide and instructor. And that he wants to teach them. He wants to inform them. He wants to lead them along the right way. Now John declares it's the last hour. In fact, he makes a double declaration at the beginning of verse 18 and at the end of verse 18. He says, it is the last hour. Now his readers were familiar with that statement, the last hour. They had been taught, and as a result of being taught about it, they realized that the last hour was something that was going to take place. And they even realized that they were in the last hour. John 
says to them, you've heard that Antichrist is coming and that he's going to be coming during this time that's called the last hour. And John doesn't stop there. He says the reality of the matter is there are many Antichrists that have arisen. Now, some of that terminology is not familiar to us. We've heard Antichrist, we've heard last hour, but it really doesn't necessarily ring a bell with us. But when the readers read this letter and they came across these words, it is the last hour. They understood that that was a time period between the first coming of Christ and when Christ would come a second time. The Apostle Paul refers to this last hour as the last days. And he says that in the last days, dangerous times are coming because men and women, boys and girls, are going to be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. The, the primary thing that the readers knew about the last hour is that it would be a time eventually when the Antichrist would come. Now, if we just kind of step back from God's word, the, the Antichrist is also referred to as the beast, also referred to as a man of lawlessness. The Antichrist seems to form an alliance that I like to call the unholy trinity. The Antichrist is linked up with the devil himself and will be linked up with the false prophet. And these three will play a prominent role during the latter part of the tribulation period. But John is not really concerned about all of that right now. All John wants his readers to know is that it's the last hour. Well, John, how do you know it's the last hour? John says, I know it's the last hour because many antichrists have come on the scene. You see, the word antichrist means to be against Christ. It means to be opposed to Christ. It means that really this antichrist wants to usurp the position and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And when he comes, he hasn't come, he's not here today, but when he comes, that's what he is going to do. He is going to be against Christ, he's going to be opposed to Christ, and he's going to seek to usurp and take the place of Christ. But John says right now, as he's writing to his readers, there are many antichrists. There are many individuals who are against Christ, who are opposed to Christ, and also who want to function in the place of Christ. As the readers look around at their situation, that's what was going on. And so John is sounding an alarm. It's the last hour. And my friends, we can still say that today. It's 
the last hour. And the way that John knew it was the last hour is because of all of these antichrists, many antichrists had arisen. And I'm sure if John was in our midst today, if he were to look at our world, look at our society, he would say the same exact thing. That around us, there has arisen individuals who are against Christ and who hate Christ and are opposed to him and anything associated with him. So John makes this double declaration, sets the alarm, pulls the switch so that we will wake up out of our comfortable decision, uh, a comfortable situation and pay attention to what is going on around us. And he wants his readers to do the same thing. Because their lives, in essence, have been shaken. It's been turned upside down. Why? Because in verse 19, John talks about the fact that there was a departure. Listen to the verse. He said, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they are all not of us. You see, during this last hour, John reveals to his readers the reality, the fact that there would be a departure. It happened during the time of his readers, and it shook them up. John says, they went out from us. That is, a group of people left the church. There was a church split, so to speak. There was a mass exodus. At one time, there was this Christian community a Christian community that John resided over, that he led, so to speak. But now, individuals left the Christian community. They left the church. And what was the remains was a group of Christians who were fractured, who were hurt, who didn't understand why these individuals have left. It used to be just First Baptist, but now there's First Baptist and Second Baptist. It used to be there was just Bethel, but now there's Greater Bethel, our new Bethel. And some of you who have come out of church background, you know what that's all about. There was a departure. And the fact of the matter is, the reality is, these individuals left. They left. But even though they left, John wants to reveal to his readers that those who left were not really a part of them. Get, get your mind on that. 
Here's a group of people that depart. Here's a group of people that leave. John said they went out from us, but the reality is they were not really of us. And what he's saying is externally, it might have looked like they were a part of the Christian faith. Externally, it might have looked like they were a part of the readers in John. That they went to the same church. They attended the same worship services. They hung out with each other. But then all of a sudden, they left. There was an exodus. There was a church split. And John says, when they left, that said something about them. And so he said, they really weren't of us. And the point that we need to keep in mind is just because people associate together externally doesn't mean that they're together and associated internally. Do you understand that? That just because people are a part of a local church and are members of a local church, that does not guarantee that they are truly a part of the body of Christ. And here were a group of individuals. They were members of their local church. They were involved in their local church. They attended the worship services in their local church. But then all of a sudden, they left. They departed. They separated themselves from the church. And John says that's because they weren't really of us. They weren't really a part of us. Externally, yes. Internally, no. Well, John, how do you know that? How can you say they weren't a part of you? How can you say they're not a part of the readers? John goes on to say, if they were of us, they would have remained with us. If they were of us, they would have remained. They would have continued. They would not have separated themselves from the true people of God. But the fact that they went out and left, that gave the evidence that they were not really of John and the readers. To put it another way, that was evidence that they were not saved. This departure showed that they were not saved. And if that's not enough, John said there was a reason why they went out. And that reason is so that it might become clear that they were not really of John and the readers. I'm not sure if you're grasping all that John is trying to communicate. But God has his ways of helping us to separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares. A lot of times it's hard and difficult to recognize that. But in this particular case, these individuals went out. They separated themselves. And the purpose, the goal for them doing that 
is in order that it might be made clear and obvious that they all, every last one of them, were not of the Christian community. Now, let me try to make this relevant. Some of you are aware of people deconstructing from the Christian faith. And what that means is they once held tightly to the Christian faith, and now for some reason or the other, they have abandoned the Christian faith. There are people, well-known people, who were a part of the Christian faith, who have come out boldly and openly, saying that I'm not a Christian, I'm not a part of Christianity, I've left the Christian faith, I have nothing to do with it at all. There was an individual who wrote a book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Well, he has kissed Christianity goodbye. He's left. What can you say about an individual like that? And please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not talking about an individual who is a part of a local church and leaves that local church and still holds on to their faith and goes to another church. Okay? I can think of at least one or two individuals that I know who have left this church and have left the Christian faith. Okay, but I'm not talking about the person who was once a member of Fairview and leaves Fairview, still holds on to the Christian faith and attends another local church. That's not what this verse is all about at all. This verse is dealing with a person who was associated and affiliated and a member of a local church. And then they leave the Christian faith and because they have left the Christian faith, they also leave the local church. And what does that mean? What does that say? That that says, according to John, that that person was not saved in the first place. It, it might have looked to us. It might have been all the indication that the person saved. They might have sat in the new members class with me. They might have sat down and gave their testimony to the deacons. They might have testified to what? They might have even served. But when a person abandons the Christian faith, I'm not talking about struggling as a Christian. I'm talking about turning their back on the Christian faith, leaving the Christian faith as these individuals did. They went out from us. They were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained. They would have stayed. They would have been faithful and continued. But it was to be manifested that they were not of us by them going out. So this idea of giving up the Christian faith, abandoning it, saying I don't believe any longer the things that I used to believe, in reality is a person who never believed in the first place. And don't argue with me about that. That's what John is saying in verse 19 when he talks about 
this departure during the last time. And my friend, it's going to continue to happen. Uh, even though we are aware of the well-known individuals that it's happened to, I know of individuals who aren't well-known, who have just simply said, I I'm finished, I'm through. I, I don't believe in the Christianity that you are proclaiming and teaching in the context of a local church. And when that happens, it's sad. But it's going to be a sign of the last hour. It's going to be an indication of what goes on. That there are going to be more individuals who depart from the faith. And it's going to be because they really have the spirit of Antichrist. They are against Christ. Now, in, in verses 20 and 21, John kind of turns our attention away from these many antichrists, these people who have departed. And he's focusing in on the readers. And it's as if John wants to make sure that those who receive this letter don't get shook up and somehow think that they're in trouble in their relationship with God. And so John gives him some reassurances that they are part of the family of God. And, and, and the wonderful thing about these reassurances is that it helps you and it helps me to know who we are in Christ. The, the, the ladies are studying that book, Identity Theft. They're learning who they are in Christ. And John wants his readers to know who they are in Christ. And all of us, whether we're male or female, whether we're young or old, we need to understand who we are in Christ. We need to understand how God views us and how God views me. That I don't have to take on the identity of how I'm perceived by the world. And so John points his attention to the readers. He says, and you have an anointing from the Holy One. He, he takes his finger and basically says, all of you, all of you who are genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, you all have an anointing from the Holy One. Now, we've abused the term anointing so much that nobody knows what this means. Because we talk about God's anointing. I remember somebody telling me, well, the reason why I didn't tell you you were in the wrong because I didn't want to touch God's anointing. I just said, I ain't God's anointed in that way. You need to tell me if I'm wrong. But, but the, the word anointed was used of priests, prophets, and kings in the Old Testament. But here it's being used of these Christian readers. It's being used of Christian. And, and when John says, you all have an anointing from the Holy One, he's saying, that each and every one of you have this anointing, which is nothing more than saying that you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He could say to all of these readers, whether they've been a Christian a day or a year or 10 years, he probably doesn't even know all of them by face, but he could say to each and every one of them, you have an anointing. 
And, and that anointing is not some special gift for you to do something. It's not some special ability for you to you know, speak well. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And at the moment of salvation, the, the wonderful news is, is that God gives me His Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation so that I can now live the Christian life. We can't do it in our own strength, and our own ability, but the indwelling Spirit that we have been anointed with enables us to be all that God wants us to be. And so if you're a Christian, if you're a child of God, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's why it matters. It matters what we do with our body. I can't just go out and do anything because my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And, and re, re, the result of this anointing, John says, and you all know. You all know. You possess knowledge. You possess biblical truth. He's not saying you know everything. There's not a Christian around who knows everything. But Christians know the essentials, the basic of the Christian life. And in order to drive that home, Paul, uh, John goes on to say in verse 21, I haven't written to you because you do not know, but because you know the truth. That's what he's saying. You all know the truth because the Holy Spirit is in you. And John says, when I write this letter to you, when I've written these verses to you, I, I've written them to you not because you do not know, but because you do know the truth. And you know that no lie is of the truth. I don't know. Maybe this has flown over your head, what John is saying. So let me just bring it down to us. He's saying that each and every one of us who's a genuine Christian has a third person of the Trinity living in us. That's good news. That is wonderful, marvelous news. That God, in the person of the Holy Spirit, lives in me. And not only that, as a result of the fact that the Spirit of God lives in me, I possess knowledge. I possess truth. So that when these deserters, so that when these people go out, I don't have to wonder whether or not I'm holding on to the truth. There are going to be those in the last hour, and we're in that last hour, who depart from the Christian faith. But the good news is, those who remain those who are faithful, those who are the true people of God, they have an anointing in the person of the Holy Spirit and they know all. 
as John says. And John is going to talk about this anointing further in verse 27. But the third thing that I would want you to see is that with regards to this time period, not only is there going to be the departure, there's going to be the denial. The times will be characterized by a particular denial. John has just said, you know the truth, and you know no lie is of the truth. And then he brings up in verse 22 the matter of the fact, who is the liar? You might want to raise your hand. <laughs> who is the liar? And John is not asking you to raise your hand. It's a rhetorical question. He answers the question right away. Who is the liar? John says, I'll tell you who the liar is. It's the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. That is the ultimate liar. That is the liar par excellence. The, the, the person who says that Jesus is not the Christ. The, the person who has words that come out of his or her mouth denying the, the truth that Jesus is the Christ, that person is the liar. There's no bigger lie than that. And if that's not enough for you to catch what John is saying, he goes on to say, this is the Antichrist. This is the embodiment of the Antichrist to actually claim that the historical Jesus is not the Messiah, is not the Christ, that is the ultimate lie and blasphemy that there could ever be. There's nothing worse than saying that. You can't separate the historical Jesus from the fact that he is the Christ, the Messiah. You see, some people want to do that. They want to drive a wedge between Jesus as a historical being and the Christ, so to speak, as a divine being. You can't separate it. And more than likely, what was happening when we read the rest of 1 John is that there were individuals who were saying, yes, the historical Jesus was born. His mother was Mary. His father was Joseph. And eventually, when he got to be around 30 years old, he was baptized. And when he was baptized, that's when the Christ came upon Jesus. Prior to that time, Jesus was just a human being. But at his baptism, the Christ came upon Jesus. So at that time, he became one. But as Jesus Christ kept living his life and eventually was put to death on the cross, Right before he was put to death on the cross, the Christ left Jesus. 
so that the one who died on the cross was not Jesus Christ, but instead was Jesus, the historical human being. The Christ left him. And so they were teaching that Jesus and the Christ were not always one. That you could divide them. There was a time that you could see Jesus separated from the Christ. And John says, who is the liar? But the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. If there's any point in time in the historical life of Jesus that you deny that he's the Christ, you're a liar. If you say at his conception in his mother's womb that he was not the Christ, that he was not conceived in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit, you're a liar. If you say on Christmas Day that the one born on Christmas Day and who was lying in the manger, if you say that was just the historical Jesus, but it was not Jesus Christ, it was not God in human flesh, you're a liar. If you say at Calvary's cross that the one who died on the cross was not the God-man, you're a liar. You're a liar. You, you cannot separate the two. And, and even though it might look different in our day, because we got people all around us who are denying that Jesus is the Christ. They come into your neighborhood and they knock on the door and they have their magazine called Watchtower and they say that they are Jehovah Witnesses. But if you ask them who is Jesus, they would deny that Jesus is the Christ. And then you have guys riding around on their bicycles. Now, a lot of times they won't come into our neighborhood on the bicycles, wearing the white shirts and the black ties. But they would tell you that they're latter-day saints associated with Jesus. But they would deny the deity of Christ. They would say Jesus is not God. They would say Jesus is not the Christ. And you have well-respected people who call themselves Jews. And you see them on Friday, sometimes walking to the synagogue. But they deny that Jesus is the Christ, the ultimate lie, the classic lie. And if you deny that Jesus is the Christ, you are the liar. You are the Antichrist in human flesh. There's nothing that goes so against Christ and is opposed to Christ than to say that Jesus is not the Christ. Fairview, we went through the Gospel of Mark. It began in Mark 1.1, the, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It, it's declared throughout the book that Jesus is the Christ. From beginning to end. And it ends with him being raised from the dead. Not his, a historical man, but Jesus who is the Christ. You cannot separate the two. You cannot. And John 
said, this is the ultimate life. And he says, if you have the audacity to say that Jesus is not the Christ, then not only do you deny Christ, but you deny the Father and the Son. Did you hear that? If you reject Jesus as the Christ, you deny both the Father and the Son. And what's interesting here is he doesn't say the Father and the Christ, but he says the Father and Son. He looks at that relationship between the Father and the Son. John, how can you say that? He says in verse 23, whoever denies the Son, you deny the Son, you don't have the Father. I don't care how religious you are. I don't care how much you go to a synagogue. I don't care how much you go to some kind of temple. If you don't, have the son you do not have the father if you want the father it comes by having the son the one who confesses as it says at the end of verse 23 the son the one who believes and says the same thing about the Son that the Bible says, that's the one who has the Father. So again, John is identified these many Christ as who? Deniers. That during this difficult time, during this last hour, that even the readers were living in, that we live in. John said there's going to be those who are involved in the ultimate denial with regards to who Jesus Christ is. But that's not true of the readers. He says in verse 24 and 25, you're different. He says, and as for you, I'm not talking anymore about these many antichrists. I'm not talking about the ultimate liar. But as for you, John says, Let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. He gives them a command. He commands them. And what he commands them is that the gospel that they heard at the beginning of their Christian life, let that continue in you. Let that abide in you which you heard. That is, somebody preached the gospel to you. You see, there can be no salvation unless the gospel is preached. Somebody preached the gospel. These individuals heard the gospel. God in his grace caused them to repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ. And God saved them. So it can be said of them that they heard the gospel at the beginning of their Christian life. And John is saying, what you heard. Don't abandon it. Don't separate from it. Don't leave it. What you heard, let it abide in you. Let it nourish you. Let it strengthen you. I mean, one of the things we ought to be doing as Christians is nourishing our soul on the wonders of the gospel. That gospel that we believe and resulted in our salvation. 
He says, let that abide in you. Let it remain in you. Let it continue in you. In you. Don't, don't follow these deserters, these leavers, these deconstructionists. Let it abide in you. You have a responsibility by God's Spirit to make sure it abides in you. That the gospel is never ever to depart from our lives. He says, if, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you, he makes a wonderful, you will also abide in the Father and in the Son. Can you imagine that? If you are obedient to the command, if you meet the condition where the gospel that you heard at the beginning is still abiding and remaining in you, you will also in addition to the gospel abiding in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. There is no closer relationship than that. To think that puny Paul Felix can abide in almighty Jesus Christ and in almighty God the Father. But, but that's the promise. Let it abide in you, Paul. Let it remain in you. And if you do that, you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And you think that's good? Look at verse 25. And this is the promise which He Himself made to us eternal life. If you think abiding in the Father and in the Son is wonderful and magnificent, John said, let me just throw something a little bit more towards you. Let, let me just remind you uh, uh, how blessed you are. Let, let me just let you know that those who remain, those who abide, those who are genuinely saved, not only are they in the Son and in the Father, but they have eternal life. That's what he's talking about, the eternal life which Christ himself promised. And John said, look, I'm not going to miss out on this. Promise to us. John said, I'm included. It's not just you Christians that I'm writing to. This is the eternal life that's been promised to you and to me. I heard it from the very lips of Jesus. Eternal life, everlasting life. Being in the presence of the Son and the Father forever. And not only in their presence, but in them. Intimacy, a relationship. You've heard me say this before. Everyone is going to live forever. But some are going to be living in the lake of fire. John says, that's not your case, readers. Let it abide in you. Let the gospel remain in you. And you will abide in the Son and in the Father, and you're going to live forever in their presence. Let me quickly come to an end. We've seen the departure. We've seen the denial. But there's one other thing that we need to see that will take place during this last hour, and that is the deception. When you think about the last hour, wake up. 
Wake up. We're in the last hour. There will be those who depart from the Christian faith. There will be those who deny who Jesus Christ is. And then also, there are going to be those who are seeking to attempt, seeking to deceive the people of God. He's talking about this same group again. He says in verse 26, these things I have written to you concerning who? Those who are trying to deceive you. John recognizes that even though these people have left, they still want to be around those that they've left. Even though they've broken ranks, they still want these people in their ranks. And, and so what do they do? They evangelize. What we should be doing. But they are evangelizing. These deniers that Jesus is the Christ. They're, they're going to go after believers. And their method of of evangelism is deception. They're going to try to hoodwink you. They're going to try to pull the wool over your eyes. And sometimes it might not be too hard because we don't know much about Jesus. And so they're going to come and seek to evangelize, seek to make you a follower of that which is a lie. Those who got bad religion are going to proselyze those who have good religion. So be aware. They're going to come knocking on your door. They're going to ride their bikes through your neighborhood. They're going to entice you to watch them on TV. They're seeking to evangelize you. They want you to follow them into a Christianity that is no Christianity at all. But John ends all of this with a mouthful. He says in verse 27, again, he turns his attention to his readers. Readers, you don't have to worry. Christians, the last hour does not have to scare us at all. John says, and as for you, the anointing, there's that word again, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and it's true, and it's not a lie, just as it has taught you, you abide in him. The anointing, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that gift from Christ himself, John says, abides in you. He doesn't say you have to let it abide in you. He says that it abides in you. The presence of the Spirit of God is in us. And that's a wonderful truth. And he says the result of that, you have no need for anyone to teach you. And I hope there's no one here today 
through the believer in Christ who's arrogant enough to think that they don't have need for anyone to teach them except God. What do you think John is doing when he writes this letter? Isn't he teaching? He's teaching. But what he's saying here is that the ultimate teacher is not the human teacher, but the divine teacher, the Holy Spirit. You have no one. You don't need these deserters, these deconstructionists, these individuals who have left the Christian faith who are trying to deceive. You don't need them teaching. You have, you have no need. You have the divine teacher in you. And he's just reminding us of the fact that we all affirm that there is no teaching taking place that accomplishes God's will unless the divine teacher teaches it. You can be a gifted human being. And you might think you're doing the greatest communication there ever is. But real teaching requires the Holy Spirit. It cannot be done apart from Him. And that's why the psalmist says repeatedly in Psalm 119, teach me. He's saying that to God. God, teach me. He's not arrogant. He's not denying human teacher. He's just saying, God, you're the ultimate teacher. You are the divine teacher. Teach me. John goes on to say that with regards to this anointing that abides in the believer, which is the Holy Spirit, it means that we've been taught about all things. Everything related to the Christian faith that we know of. And again, I'm not saying everything in the Word of God. But with regards to salvation, the Spirit of God teaches us. He's communicated to us. He goes on to say that this anointing in believers is true. It's not a lie. It has taught you. And then he ends by saying a statement of fact that you readers abide in Christ. Now some people take that as a command. I think the command will come next Sunday. I think this is a statement of fact. You abide in Christ. That is a reality for the child of God. And, and I know that I've been long, but I just want to encourage you to go back to this verse and think on it and, and meditate on it. You, you'll be amazed at all that God has done for you in your salvation. He has given you His Holy Spirit. And because you have His Holy Spirit, you don't have need of any teacher but the divine teacher. And the divine teacher teaches you about all things that are relevant to your salvation and particularly to the gospel presentation. 
this anointing in you is true. It's not a lie. You've experienced it. You know what it means. It's happened to you in the past. And he ends by saying, look, regardless of the time, you are abiding in Christ. You are abiding in Christ. It's dinner time. No, it's the last hour. And during the last hour, there are going to be individuals who desert the Christian faith, who deny that Jesus is the Christ, and who will seek to deceive and lead the people of God astray. But the good news is that God on his part has done so many marvelous things for you that it won't be possible for you to desert the Christian faith. It won't be possible for you to deny that Jesus is the Christ. It won't be possible for you to be deceived and go astray. God has given you an anointing in the person of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. And because of that, you all know God has given you an anointing that comes from Christ himself. You have the divine teacher who teaches you about all things. That the Spirit of God will teach us, my friends. And yes, He teaches us through human teachers and preachers, through the divine Word. But ultimately, if the Spirit of God doesn't teach us, we won't learn. We won't learn. So recognize your identity in Christ. Recognize all that God has done for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we bow before you and we're thankful that your word instructs us and guides us and particularly opens our eyes with regards to the last hour. The readers in John's day lived in the time of the last hour. So do we. Help us to have our eyes open to the things that will take place during the last hour as we rapidly approach the coming of Jesus Christ. Help us to realize that there will be those who leave the Christian faith, those who deny the Christian faith, and those who will seek to lead astray those who are a part of the faith. But thank you, Father, for all of these different assurances that are ours in this passage. Thank you most of all that the Spirit of God lives in us and that because of that, we can keep the gospel central to our lives and will experience that wonderful promise that we will abide in the Son 
and in the Father and that we will experience everlasting and eternal life in your presence. Father, you have done so much for us. You've been so good to us. Help us to appropriate these blessings that are ours in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.